Another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens, below the line with the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers, the producers, the writers, the creators, the directors, the actors, the cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, sound editors, sound mixers, film editors, authors, you name it, and we talk to them. Uh, and we're coming to you as usual. It's Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. We're right here on AdrenalineRadio.com. And if you're really bored and you're at your computer, you can see me looking dumb sitting in the in the booth at, Adre- at Adrenaline Radio in our studio uh, on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook Live feed that's streaming on Facebook. Um, if Pam turned it on. Did Pam turn on Nick's beloved Mevo? Um you have to under anybody that our regular listeners, you all know that station owner Nick, he likes toys. He likes to play with things. Uh, so he buys toys like Mevo. But if you happen to be looking at the live stream feed, you will see my ever changing weekly tablescape with a lot of our award nominees and potential nominees for year end 2021. Um, we've really had a great, great year of films. A lot of them made under the harshest of conditions with sound being composed, uh, and editing being done via Zoom or some other platform similar to that with composers overseas, directors in Los Angeles or New York, um, editors, even in Los Angeles, but one is at one location, one is at the other, because for the bulk of 2020 and earlier this year, they still couldn't be in the same rooms together. Um, so to see what filmmakers have come up with, with films this year, absolutely outstanding. And of course, some of these uh, that are coming out right now, they've had a year delay. Uh, a perfect example of a year delay was Eternals, was a delayed uh, for a year because of the pandemic and the lockdowns, which gave the visual effects artisans at Weta in New Zealand even more time to perf- to perfect the plethora of visual effects in Eternals. And if you want to hear an interview that I absolutely love, it's out on BehindTheLensOnline.net right now. Uh, Matt Aitken the VFX supervisor at Weta, talking about everything that went into Eternals. It's really interesting. Uh, And Eternals is, it's one of the hot contenders for visual effects uh, during award season. I know they already picked up a nomination with my critics group, Hollywood Critics Association. It's a hot contender for Oscar as well. So we'll see what happens with that. But, so many films West Side Story you won't be disappointed I know a lot of people are bemoaning oh it only took in 10 million dollars over the weekend West Side Story is a long haul movie people it's a movie that 
it's going to be around for a while. You do need to see it in the theater. Janice Kaminsky's cinematography is breathtaking. It is breathtaking. It ele- it is one of the factors that really sets this film apart from the original 1961 version. Uh, the music, of course, is outstanding. What Tony Kushner does with the screenplay of West Side Story, he's juggled some things around from the original film, but he's gone back to the Broadway musical. Uh, and this is what a lot of people forget sometimes is a lot of films that were made uh, in the musical heyday, um, which was the the 50s and then the early 60s and then the 60s with Oliver being in 1969 one of the last big musical spectacles um, is that so much of that came from the stage so what we're seeing with films like West Side Story you have Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner they're going back to the stage and working from that as opposed to replicating or duplicating what's already on film. Um, West Side Story is outstanding um, on every single level. As a film critic, as a lover of musicals, I mean, I did my master's thesis on the Hollywood movie musical, um, and as a classic film aficionado and film historian, I had great doubts about West Side Story. I am in love with the film, in love with it on every single level. There's only one performance I'm not real fond of in the film, but, you know, the the showstopper of the film is Rita Moreno, who is now playing Valentina, the widow of Doc, who was in the original play in the original film, the pharmacy owner. Uh, and here she gets the spotlight with the a musical number that will bring tears to your eyes. She is one of my big picks for a Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination this year, um, along with Rachel Zegler, who plays Maria in the film, but just on every level. So do yourselves a favor, over these Christmas holidays, go see West Side Story, see it on the big screen, you will look, pay attention. Look at the colors that are used. The, you know, every filmmaking tool comes together to bring this story to life. But yeah, Janice Kaminsky's cinematography is beyond reproach. And I love his technique and style. Some of which was first brought to light by Gene Kelly when he directed Hello, Dolly! with Barbara Streisand. So... I can't recommend it highly enough. Another film. Another film that came out this weekend that is very, very dear to my heart. Director Rick Roman Wall. uh, Written by Adam Mervis. National Champions. Um, You know, college athletics. The NCAA program. This has been in the news a lot the past few years. With billions and billions of dollars being generated through the collegiate athletic system, what do the the student-athletes get? Yeah, they get college. They get medical care. If they get injured while they're playing, 
but they're also, you know, they're they're at the beck and call of the coaches, the teams, the alumni, the uh, the sporting associations themselves. Um, and this film, National Champions, actually takes a look at that when two of the leading players going into a national championship game decide to boycott and not play. And they essentially call for a strike of other collegiate players. It is an outstanding film. The story is so compelling. It's shot very cleanly. There's nothing fancy. This boils down to story and performances. And the performances in this film are off the charts. Uh, You've got... Uh, you've got Stefan James, who many of you may recall, uh, he played Jesse Owens in the film Race a few years ago. Uh, we've got Alexander Ludwig, and who doesn't love him? Um, they play Lamarcus and Emmett, the two player best friends, and the two players that stage this boycott. Uh, then we've got J.K. Simmons, Uzo Aduba, who, for my money, she is a hot Oscar contender. As a supporting actress, she is riveting. She will have you yelling, crying, cheering on your knees with her performance in this film. Jeffrey Donovan, David Kachner, Tim Blake Nelson, who's having an incredible year. Old Henry, if you haven't seen it, it's on VOD, it's on digital, see it. And now we see him here in a completely different take. Timothy Oliphant, Lil Rel Howry, Kristen Chenoweth. This is an embarrassment of riches for Rick Waugh as a filmmaker to have all of the, this this cast. But it is the story and it's the performances. This is performance-driven. It is character-driven. It is a pay-attention film. It's a very thought-provoking film. And it will, for parents out there, for student-athletes out there, must-see, must-see film. Uh, so I, And that just opened on Friday. So check that one out. Now, as for today's show, very excited. We're going to have Seth Gilbert and Noah Gilbert joining us at the midpoint of the show to talk about the only one. This is Noah's feature directorial debut. It is also Seth's feature screenplay debut. Uh, Shot on location in France, in the countryside with vineyards. And you can just watch the film. Turn the sound down. Just watch the film and look at the gorgeous, gorgeous visuals that we get from Todd Bell in that film. So Seth and Noah are going to be joining us at the midpoint of the show. But first, um, you heard me mention this this TV series, Apple TV series, a couple months ago, Invasion. It is riveting. It is compelling. Um it's basically the story of five ordinary people around the globe um, who are affected by an alien, va- an alien invasion that is try- taking over the Earth. And the way this series is constructed, it's a 10-episode series. Season 1 just ended on the 10th. The last episode of Season 1 came out, and boy, is it a cliffhanger. Um on the 8th of December, the day after I spoke with executive producer, creator, and writer Simon Kinberg, uh, it was announced that, yes, there will be a season two, so I can hardly wait. But the way this series is structured is that 
we see the different perspectives around the globe of these primary individuals and the people in their orbit uh, and see what is happening in, in terms of these aliens and in terms of taking control or not taking control and how can humans fight them. It is just, I cannot look away from it when I watch. It is amazing. And I got to speak with Simon Kinberg last week. Um, which thrilled me to no end because of my love for this series. Yes, I actually do manage to see entire series beyond Yellowstone. Which, folks, by the way, uh, we just finished episode 7 of Yellowstone season 4 last night. Wow. It is a wowza. Uh, and I will be going back to see it again for a third time because I watched the Encore presentation last night, too. Um, but... In terms of invasion, this is so well done. What's really interesting is out of these episodes, we've got multiple directors, some of them women. We have multiple cinematographers, some of them women. We have multiple editors, some of them women. So anybody that's complaining that women are not directing, lensing, editing, they are. Yes, could there be more? If they are right for the job and are capable, you don't just hire them because they're women. And the work that we see in Invasion from the male and female artisans alike is exemplary. And of course, composer Max Richter, this score is amazing. So I'm going to shut up and I'm going to let you take a listen to my exclusive interview with Simon Kinberg, the executive producer, creator, and writer, actually co-writer along with David Wheel, of Invasion that airs on, you can see all 10 episodes now on Apple TV. Take a listen. Hi, Simon. Hey, how are you? I am very excited to be speaking to one of the geniuses behind Invasion. <laughs> Thanks so much. I appreciate that. This show is beyond addictive. From the very first trailer that I saw, and then when they sent me the first three episodes, I mean, I have been riveted, riveted by this series. And now to get a look at the last couple of episodes, um, with the final one dropping, what, later this week, on the 10th, I think. Yeah. Yeah, right oh my God, Simon. You had me episode nine. You had me full of stars on the edge of my seat. Then you break my heart. Only to then in episode 10, we get to the final like four minutes of it. And that back and forth montage with with Casper, with uh, Travante, with Anisha, and then you go to black, and I'm like, oh, kill me now. I am so ready for season two. Simon, this show, it is so original. It is so creative. It is so immersive. And the way that you make it global, the way, the diversity to have a young boy who is a hero, you have checked every box and then some. You and David on this one. I, I just, I'm in love with it. Oh, I can hear that. And I really, really, really appreciate it. A lot of love went into 
making the show and constructing those characters, and I love it too. Um, it's been a long time since I was able to, or not able, but it's been a long time since I created something entirely new. Um, and and so it's just been thrilling to feel like you're putting new characters and new heroes um, uh, into the world. Uh, and and I, you know, it, it's a it's different than the stuff that I've done in the past in some ways. I mean, obviously it's science fiction and it's got action and all that, but um, I really, it, it's the first time I've uh, really immersed myself in television and I wanted to use the medium to do something that would be more emotional and be more dramatic and take its time with these characters and, and, and you know, like you say, kind of bring you into their lives in a way that, um, Hopefully it's like, hopefully it, it, it obviously is for you, but hopefully for, for lots of folks is it, addictive um, um, and keeps you coming back because you care about these characters so much um, beyond just the alien invasion of it all. But yeah, no, I, I, I'm so, your, your response is um, very uh, uh, inspiring um, and gets me excited about uh, what we could do with it. Oh, I, I mean, they, you, you can go so many places with this. And, I mean, I see the enemy is now being within. That would be my take on it. If I were doing a season two, uh, that the enemy is now coming from within instead of from externally, be, just because of what we're seeing, and particularly with the character of Casper. How did you, what was the impetus the germ of the idea that set you off with this whole idea for this story? Um, it started with, actually, um, Audrey Chan, who's one of the executives of the show um, and runs my production company. She um, uh, found out that the, the television rights to War of the Worlds, the H.G. Wells um, novel, were available, and she emailed me saying, would you be interested in this? And I said, yeah, we think about it. And I started thinking about it, and I was like, you know, the, the way I would be, because I love the book, but I was like, you know, the way I would be interested in it would be if we could tell it in a global way from multiple perspectives, much like the movie Babel. And if we could really, like, delve into, like, intense, intimate, um, dramatic character stories um, that then get exploded by the fact that um, the world gets invaded by aliens. And, and so that was really the germ of the idea. And as I started developing it, I met with a bunch of different writers to, to, to co-create it with me. And, and David really, um, we had like a love fest first meeting together that was like three or four hours long. And he really understood what I was one, what, trying to do with the show. Um, and it's much, very much his sensibility as well. Um, the more we developed it, the more um, it, it just was moving away from the H.G. Wells story, which is British and really about a single protagonist, and um, and became was becoming its own thing. And then at a certain point, we just kind of looked up and we were like, this has nothing to do with the War of the Worlds other than an alien invasion. Um, this is its own animal. And, uh, and so, yeah, it began as, you know, inspired by um, H.G. Wells' book, and then it just became and evolved um, into its own... Uh, very unique, um, very unique thing. And, and for me, it was always about, and I, I've tried to do this in my other work, to, to, to lesser and, and sometimes, you know, more uh, effect, is, is 
something really epic with something really intimate. So that you get these really, like, like I say, really human, nuanced, um, emotional stories. But then you also get, you know, massive spaceships and aliens and, um, you know, all of the stuff that you expect from science fiction in the genre. But yeah, it, it really it began from War of the Worlds. Wow. You know, how challenging was it for you to come up with the characters and also your various locations? Um, there's great deliberateness in the locations and settings you have chosen for this story. So I'm curious about the challenges you faced in making those decisions to create the characters and have the, those very specific locations come in because locations are almost as important as the characters with this one. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, it was really important to us for this to feel like a global show because we're usually in so many alien invasion stories, you get it from an American point of view and only an American point of view. You know, whether it's Independence Day or um, the Spielberg's War of the Worlds um, or Close Encounters or E.T. or, you know, partly because they come from American filmmakers, but... Um, it was really important for us to feel like we were representing a global experience, a global event. Um, and as we started thinking about the different places of the world, um, we knew we wanted some characters in America. We knew we wanted um, characters in Europe. We, we had a strong feeling that we wanted characters in Asia. Um, and from there, we also started thinking about what were different experiences um, that we could explore with each of the different storylines. So like one experience is um, being uh, in a, a sort of traditional nuclear family um, and focusing on the mom and that family. Uh, and then creating a we wanted to create a crisis for each of the different characters. So the crisis for the mom, obviously, is that she discovers that her husband um, is having an affair. Um, and then we wanted to tell a love story. Uh, and that's where the, the Japanese story came from between Mitsuki and Nada. And um, the crisis is obviously that, you know, she loses her love um, in essentially, you know, her first episode. Um, and then we wanted to create a story about um, a broken uh, family um, coming back together. And that was really the Toronto story about, you know, a guy who had left home because he couldn't handle the death of his son and um, is making his way back home uh, and sort of coming to peace in some ways, which Casper helps him do, coming to peace in some ways. Um, with the loss of his of his son and of his of his old life, um, and the other thing we wanted to do was tell um, a kind of John. I was really interested in telling this sort of John Hughes Lord of the Flies mashup of. I mean, I grew up in the in the late '80s, like loving loving John Hughes movies, and there aren't the same kind quite now. And I just wanted to tell a high school. Um, uh, drama um, and uh, so that's where the Casper story came from and then we just started plugging them into well, what, what would, where would each of these different stories and dilemmas be most interesting and it was interesting for us to put the Misky um, uh, love story in a country where um, uh, homosexuality is not spoken about mm -hmm. um, and it's a really, it's not as open a society as a lot of other places in the world. So that's how we chose, that's how we sort of paired that with Japan. And it was 
family being um, uh, an Arab American family and putting them in a predominantly white suburb. So that from the very beginning, they're sort of alienated. Um, uh, and so that's how we chose Anisha and her family and Alex and Long Island. And, and it's just that's, you know, on and on it went. And it was like, we just started plugging things in that felt like they um, would create the most conflict and drama, really, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the, the way you um, hopefully tell good stories. A big part of this, obviously, are the aliens. How much input did you have into the look of the aliens? I worked really closely with um, Eric Henry, our visual effects supervisor, who's an unbelievable brain. Um, and me, David, Andrew Baldwin, who's also one of our executive producers, um, who's very hands-on uh, in, the, in the physical production side of the show. Um, we all um, spent a lot of time with Eric trying to create uh, an alien that had elements of things that uh, maybe we've all loved from um, different aliens that we've seen in movies in the past, uh, but would be unique in its movement um, and even in things like the ferrofluid that's in it. Um, Eric and all of us were really um, intent on creating something that has, has, had its own physics, had some sort of scientific um, reality to it, um, or grounding to it. Uh, and that's, that's how we came up with the different various aliens and alien ships you see over the span of the season. Mm-hmm. No, I'm, I'm just intr- totally intrigued by the movement of the aliens, the look. And, you know, in episode 10, we really come in on these close-ups and then we get that great imaging between the alien and Casper and our the human brain and the alien and you can actually visually compare it as well as getting mesmerized by it with the vfx it's just spectacular from a visual standpoint and this is something that is consistent throughout the whole series simon the editing is so crisp it's rapier the cinematography and you're using multiple cinematographers multiple editors Everything is cohesive because, as you well know, when you start getting different voices in there, sometimes the voices aren't cohesive. And, you know, with the series, you want it to be cohesive so it doesn't feel like something just got plopped in the middle. You know, which one doesn't belong? For sure. sure. You and I, I'm sure, could could list off many series (laughs) that feel like they're they're incoherent and you can feel the when they fired their showrunner in the middle of the season or, you know, um, it was really important for us to, for it to have a singular vision, even if it was, you know, to share vision, but a singular, a singular vision, um, uh, cinematically, so visually and thematically, um, and, uh, and emotionally. Um, and, and, you know, I also have to credit, um, Jakob Rugen, who was our, um, director, producer, who directed the first two and last two episodes, he really set the visual palette and tone of the show um, brilliantly so that the other directors who came on um, had a sense of sort of what they could, um, you know, the, the visual grammar or language of the show. And and they were really, I think, incredibly good at, um, at uh, maintaining that over the span of the series. And I think bookending with the same director for the first two and last two episodes um, really helped us too. I 
completely agree with you. And what I also notice is that you have, you know, anybody that complains that females aren't getting to direct, females aren't getting to do this, you have women directors, you've got women cinematographers, you've got a women editor thrown in here. Yeah. You are as diverse behind the camera as the as the series is in front of the camera. Well, that's, that's something that's really important to me in general and everything that I do. Um, and it was equally important to me here. Uh, there are just as many talented, obviously, female filmmakers um, as there are male filmmakers. They're just not given the same um, opportunities. And so when, especially when you're creating a show where you're going to have multiple opportunities as opposed to a movie where you have one director and one editor um, and one cinematographer, um, because we had all of these opportunities from the very beginning. Um, again, like I say, with everything that I do, I was really trying to create um, as, as diverse a crew um, as, as cast. In some ways, I think um, creating a diverse cast and, and that, again, diverse across age, race, nationality, gender, um, I, think, I think that's extremely important and I think it's something that is done increasingly now, but I think that the behind the camera diversity in terms of gender um, and, um, and race and nationality um, is lagging a little bit behind casting. Um, and I think that that's something that I, I feel an obligation um, and an opportunity. It's not, it's, you know, I think one of the strengths of the show is that there are so many different perspectives um, that are feeding into the richness um, of the experience. And I think a lot of that is not because it's coming out of my and David Wiles imagination. It's because it's coming from people's real experience. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that, and I know that that's true on anything that I've ever worked on, um, that the more um, varied perspectives and life experiences that you put into the stew of making the thing, um, the richer the stew is. For my last question, I have to ask you about Max Richter's fantastic scoring. This is not score that I would have expected. Most uh, most producers, most directors, they would have gone more with a sci-fi kind of tropey sound. This is anything but through all ten episodes. So um, I'm really curious for you as an executive producer and a writer, what were you and the team looking for musically, sonically, to really bring uh, this to life? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that, and, and your comment is exactly right. Most, most science fiction and action shows would definitely go with a more um, action-oriented uh, uh, composer. Um, it's really simple for me. One is I worship Max. Um, I, I, he had, he did a, he had a, like an eight hour, um, symphony, uh, entitled Sleep. And I listened to it every night before I go, when I'm going to sleep, I, he did, played it in the park in Los Angeles a couple of years ago. And I went with a friend of mine, um, and you slept over in cots, um, in the middle of the park. I mean, that's like how hardcore fan I am of Max's work. Um, and when I was writing the show, um, when I write, I, I write to music, uh, to score, um, you know, to, to music without lyrics. And I was just writing to Max's um, other scores um, or other compositions um, because his work is so emotional. Um, more than anything, I think that's the thing that he does so brilliantly, um, whether it's scoring for a picture or it's just his own original compositions. 
um, there's an incredibly um, uh, emotive feel uh, to his work, and that's what I wanted to create in the show. I actually think that the action um, and the sort of propulsion that often um, uh, shows and movies lean on score to provide a little bit of a crutch. And I also think it's something that's relatively, certainly relative to emotion, is relatively easy to, to, to construct. And, you know, Max was very able to give us action cues um, as well, but it was those emotional moments and, like, the patience that he creates, um, uh, but the, like, it keeps you, it's like it's sort of like one note that keeps you riveted. Um, it's just really special and specific to him, uh, and I wanted the show to feel that, that emotion and that specialness um, and not generic. Oh, well, you definitely, definitely succeeded there, Simon. Oh, Simon, this has been so wonderful to get to chat with you. I love this series so much. I want season two, but I want it now. <laughs> I can't promise you now, but um, <laughs> I have a good feeling about season two. So um, uh, you'll have to wait a little bit, but I really, really appreciate I really, really appreciate it. Great talking to you, and I really appreciate your uh, enthusiasm and support for the show. It means a lot. And I hope we get to chat again in the future, Simon. Me too. And that was Simon Kinberg. <coughs> executive producer, co-writer, creator of Invasion. If you haven't seen it, please, I encourage you. You can watch all 10 episodes. You can binge watch on Apple TV 24-7. Um, I really am addicted to Invasion. And I ca as I said, on December 8th, they announced there will be a season two. So I am anxiously awaiting that. Um, so hopefully... Next year, we'll be talking with Simon again about the series. Well, we are currently trying to track down. Uh, set up. Oh, we may have them. Okay, we've been trying to. We were trying to track down Seth and Noah Gilbert. Uh, so Pam is. The phone is ringing. Very diligent publicist. Karen Oberman has been on the hunt for them, especially after they confirmed last night. So. I think she may have uh, she may have found them. Um, okay, it's okay. Well, we'll you know we'll do one, and if the other calls in, okay. Let's let's shift everything around here. Keep them on hold for one second, and all right. I know half of you that are watching, you you just crack up at all of my my pink pages and how I break everything up here. But now, without any further ado, let's welcome Noah. Noah, hi there. Gil? How are you? Sorry hi. for my tardiness. The, uh, I think there was like a mishap with the calendar invite. Up uh, and Pam. It looks like Seth is dialing in on the other line. So you were you were prompter than Seth. So you can hold that over his head. Just, just by him. Just so by you hair. know. But I'm so excited to have you on the show. And Pam's going to bring Loop Seth in here. Okay. Thank you so much for having us. Oh. We're, we're very glad to be here. I am so excited. Okay. Are you still there, Noah? I'm here. Yep. Okay. Seth, are you there? I am. I'm here. Welcome. Welcome. I am so Thank happy you. to have both of you on after watching The Only One. 
this I got to tell you guys, this film is so beautiful, you could turn the sound off and still love watching this film. It is Todd Bell's cinematography, your location, it just sweeps you away. I want to go to France now. I want to go to a vineyard. I want to go hang out in a grotto somewhere with that crystalline water. It's gorgeous. Gorgeous to look at, guys. <laughs> um, so beautifully done. Um, you know, this is a first directorial feature for you, Noah. And this is a first feature screenplay for you, Seth, correct? Um, I was going to say, uh, yeah, the part of the part of the beauty of what we got to do is, you know, really transport people to that beautiful place um, in the south of France. And, and it really doesn't get much better than that. Um, and Todd, uh, our cinematographer, like you said, really captured it um, as delicately and beautifully as possible. And to answer your question, yes, it's, it is our first it is my first feature and Seth's first produced screenplay. Well, all I know is I'm glad that President Biden announced today he is going to get rid of a lot of the red tape to expedite people being able to get their passports. Because once people see this movie, they're going to need a passport to go to France. Um, you are going to impact the economy, the travel economy, boys. Uh, I got news for you. You know, where did the idea for this film arise, Seth? Or did the two of you come up with the idea together? Um what was this this germ of, of an idea? Well, like you're saying, um, the 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 beauty of the film and, and that location is, is so self evident. And the, the idea of the film came from from Noah and I talking about um, stories that we were that we were interested in sharing. But it was um, the, the 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 specific premise of the film came from the fact that I was I was at the time living and staying in that part of France. Mm. Um, I had stumbled on this this art center um, in this small town, small village called Piegon, um, and these two wonderful women I was I was I was staying with Sheila and Claude, uh, who have been there since the fifties, were very welcoming, were sharing their food and their wine and everything else. Um, and I called Noah and said, "We should just we should make a movie here." Easy as that, huh? Wow. <laughs> <clears throat> And what, Easy as that. And what, we, what did you think, Noah, when Seth said, yeah, I think we should make a movie here? Did it enter your uh, mind, well, challenges? We've, or? We've, we've long, like, a, a, big, a big part of how we like to make art and films and tell stories is, you know, a, a big group of the people that are a part of this project are all our, you know, dear, dear friends. John Beavers, who plays David, is a, an old, old friend of ours. Um, and we just wanted to find a place where we could live and, uh, you know, eat together, drink wine together, and tell a story together. So this uh, location really presented the perfect um, setting for that. Well, n now you brought up the drinking the wine. So how much wine was consumed making this film? There was quite a bit of wine consumed. <laughs> um, obviously, there was a vineyard on the property we actually <laughs> stayed. There are, you know, vineyards all over that surrounding area. <laughs> it's actually very funny. Um, Written into the French Union laws, you have to provide them with table wine for, during lunch. So uh, we drank a lot of wine. Oh, my God. Now, you bring up something really important here that a lot of filmmakers, because all they do are domestic in the United States, they're, they don't really deal with or uh, the challenges that come with working abroad. 
as filmmakers, what kind of challenges were you faced with before you could even start shooting the only one because of rules and regulations in France and their labor laws? That's a very good question. Um, so the first step was to find a, uh, a local production company to cooperate with. Um, and so we uh, worked with a company called Neon uh, Films out in France. Uh, and Antonin, Antonin Didet, uh who's the producer over there. Uh, and he really helped us a ton um, just get settled into what, we, what was required of us there. Um, there were some things like they work much shorter days than we work out here. Um, so we really had to get to, to motivate and inspire a team to want to work uh, kind of on our schedule because, you know, it's a first feature, it's an independent film, and in order to accomplish it in the way that we needed to, we really needed to, you know, to, to work long days. Um, it also is very fortunate that Seth speaks French fluently. I don't. Um, and so Seth was immensely helpful in terms of bridging a little bit of that language gap. Um, but frankly, like there are tons of beautiful artists down there because we were a little remote in the South of France. Um, we had to bring people in from, uh, you know, from Paris and from elsewhere, but we were very fortunate just to have a really, really tight team. And I brought, um, you know, a bunch of our key, uh, production team from the States. Mm -hmm. Wow. And all of that travel and bringing people in. Um, from other cities and all that adds to that eats away at your budgeting. Absolutely, that was a big part of it, and um, and it's why you know, really the, the this little artist retreat, the chateau that we stayed at, was a magical thing because we could all live there, we could all eat there. It was kind of like an all inclusive production resort of sorts <laughs> where we could, you know, just all settle and then focus on making this film. And, it, you know, it, it um, shone as one of our primary locations as well. So it was a, a fairly intimate production once we got there, but a lot of the resources were spent um, getting everything down to that remote location. But then once you're there, as you said, to start the conversation, you turn the camera anywhere and it's astoundingly beautiful. And it's things that people may not have necessarily seen before. And you can really, especially in, you know, we didn't know that, that, uh, you know, these, this day and age of lockdowns was coming, but especially for people now that haven't gotten to get out in the way they once um, used to be able to, it's beautiful to get to take a little journey, you know, a trip to the mm -hmm. south of France and get to experience what that might be like. Yeah, and, you know, one thing I love, um, and it's kudos to Todd and to you in pointing that camera everywhere that you pointed it, the light is different than what we're really used to seeing because those vineyards, uh, the topography is up higher, than what we're used to in cities and whatnot, because you need that moister air um, for to grow the grapes. So you get a different kind of uh, sun filter with your light, and it really just makes it even more magical and more romantic and more spectacular. Um, I'm so happy you guys made this film there. But <laughs> yeah, we are too. You know, it truly is one of the most beautiful places in the world. Um, uh, it, it is just such a special energy, and a lot of what we wanted to communicate was that. Um, you know, the film it definitely is paced in, you know, in more of a European filmmaking mm -hmm. way. Um, and uh, one of the goals of being there was just to let the the space and the environment inform the 
the movie in general. Mm -hmm. Now, Seth, I'm curious because some of the locations are very story specific, such as the family wine cellar that is then all lit by candlelight. And that is so beautiful. And there are several scenes that take place there. Did you suss all of this out while you were writing the script? Did uh, these kind of things fall into place once you were at your, your location? I'm curious for you as the screenwriter, how much of each individual location did you incorporate into on the page? Well, so so interestingly, um, the uh, uh, many of those locations because I was staying at that art center where we where we filmed the. Uh, the majority of the movie are very specific. The, the statue, for example, was written into the script because it really was in the hedge maze um, that the last owner of the of that art center um, had created uh, and had commissioned. The wine cellar specifically is an interesting one because that was something that I kind of assumed we were able to find very very easily in the area. Mm -hmm. So I just I had it written into the into the script, and it became a little bit of a saga trying to find the exact right. Um, appearance of a wine cellar in that town or in the area uh, once once Noah had arrived. It actually became kind of the the the, the search for the Holy Grail um, uh, on location. Yeah, well, we learned um, we learned very quickly that that aesthetic of wine cellar actually predominantly exists in Bordeaux. Mm. Um, but like you were saying, because of the uh, temper, because of the climate where it is, they don't have the underground cellars in the same way. So we really had to search it out, and we managed to find. Uh, one of their neighbors lives in a house that used to be a Roman dwelling and that they had built the house around. And so that wine cellar we shot in was like a 1,000-year-old oh old my Roman God. wine cellar. Um, and, yeah, just became this weirdly magical thing. There was a lot of serendipity. Wow. And, of course, that wine cellar, and you can I love how Todd, you know, Todd's camera picks up the, the individual bricking and the arching. Uh, of the way it's constructed. And it looks to me, for a thousand years old, it looks better than a lot of the construction we see today. Um, <laughs> so, well, it, it, absolutely. It, it really, it's, it's, it's a beautiful cellar and a beautiful location. We had a, um, our, uh, our set designer, Alexander Marcoque uh, uh, in France, who also dressed that up to, mm. to look as quaint and beautiful as it, as it was. So, it was a, it was it was really a team effort to get it there, but um, but it was also just a, a gorgeous location. Oh, absolutely! Well, you know this story. You know because it's the two of you. I love that you give this. You essentially are telling this from two different perspectives. You're telling it from the female and from the male perspective. We have Tom. She wanders around. She's always she's kind of sketchy. You know, she and I think a lot of this is thanks to Caitlin Stacy's performance as Tom. But there's always something about her. Do we trust that she's suddenly shown up back in poor David's life, who's played beautifully by John Beavers, while he's falling head over heels, you know, beyond puppy dog smitten love with her again? Um, but you, you, we get both perspectives. A lot of what we get with Tom is very observational in some very pensive moments she wanders off by herself she sits she thinks is she second guessing what she's doing what she's not doing and David is just so open and welcoming and wants to give his entire heart to this woman again um, I, I love how we're seeing both sides of the coin here 
And then you give us the character of Madame Gerard, who always needs somebody with words of wisdom. And Madame Gerard has lots of words of wisdom peppered throughout the film. And I love that. And I love their brief. It's never preachy, but it gives you food for thought for anybody that is listening. You, you're very wise, Seth, in what you've, a lot of what you've written here. Very wise. Um, I'll speak well, to that because he's humble. But, yeah. but that's, very, that's really true. And I think there's a subtlety to what Seth wrote. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and it really it, it doesn't have a ton of judgment. You get to watch these characters that are both inherently flawed in a lot of ways, but then also really insightful in others. Um, and, you know, part of the part of the beauty of getting to share those two unique perspectives is, you know, again, on, in Seth's beautiful script. And then you know, John Beavers and, and Caitlin Stacey do such wonderful, subtle work um, to communicate, yeah, just the human experience. Um, we, uh, so obviously because Seth and I are both men and we were in, in part in 50% telling a, a woman's story, we made sure that we had at least half of our cast and crew um, as women. Mm -hmm. um, so we had a lot of women on set at all times, and then Caitlin really did just bring her own heart and soul to that character. Yeah, I mean, Tom is a very interesting character to watch. And the way you let the camera linger on her and capture her when she's, you know, ling you know hanging out in a hallway, eavesdropping on somebody, hearing conversations. And Caitlin gets, she has a great nuance in her facial expressiveness. So that you can tell she's listening, but you can also tell she might be rethinking what she's doing or not doing. Uh, and I'm being cagey because I don't want to give everything away to, to the listeners, to the audience. But I really love that and how you just, you pace everything so well that it kind of goes with that whole European you know, lifestyle of you take time, you spend an hour, you drink a bottle of wine at lunch, you, you end work at four o'clock, all of this stuff. And we really feel, get that feeling through this film. Uh, and that, that comes down to your script, Seth, your direction, Noah, and also your editor, Hannah Beavers, knowing how to find that pacing. Was that a challenge for you, Noah? in editing, working with Hannah? Yeah, I mean, working with Hannah is always such a pleasure. She has such an instinct for pacing and timing and also is just one of the most delightful people to work with. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, you know, it, we, it took us a long time to sort of find the heartbeat of the thing. But once we did, you know, and a lot of that comes from Hannah, um, it was, you know... It, we had such a great time making the film, too. Hannah was there with us in France while we were shooting, um, and mm. she would edit together dailies that we could look at the next day. So we really got a good picture of the movie we were making as we were making it. Um, and then going back and watching these piece, I think we just had such a great time making it that it was, I, I can't speak for her, but it was a pleasure for me. Now, Seth, I'm curious, was there a lot of ad-libbing or rewriting of your script on the day once you got into production, or did it pretty much stay the same as you had it on the page? Uh, actually, the, 
there wasn't very much. Um, uh, I was lucky in that um, Noah and our actors were all very faithful to to most of the lines. Obviously, there are things that end up changing, um, uh, little cuts that get made, and also sure. just on the day we try different things out and something works better because um, the actors put so much work into into believing and becoming these characters that sometimes they just know better what what they should be saying or expressing. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, uh, uh, it it came out uh, very much what was on the page. Wow, and that's that's pretty rare. It, with few exceptions, I think that's become you know pretty rare in filmmaking um, to stay that closely to the words on the page, unless it's something that is so monologue driven that you have to stay, um, because to deviate from it would be a catastrophe for everyone. Uh, you keep this ensemble very, very, very tight, very small. Um, did you both have, you know, Noah obviously is director. You've got major input into the casting. Seth, because you envision these characters on the page, were you involved in the casting uh, with Noah? How challenging was it putting this cast together? You've got Caitlin, you've got John, you've got Blake Lindsley, you've got Hugh Armstrong, and then you've got Nasima Thalad as Madame Girard. Um, that, that was no, you can take over that one, but, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it was, um, it was a, it was a challenge, um, for a couple of the characters for, for, for certain of them, as, as Noah mentioned, we've known John for a long time. So the role of David was, was very much written for him. Um, uh, Caitlin was, uh, it was a, it was a real search to find somebody who could embody the character of Tom, um, as I had imagined it, um, and as I'd put it on the page and, um, you know, uh, uh, as, as for, for, for Blake and Hugo, they're just wonderful actors. We've, we've known Hugo for a long time and he's one of the most tremendous actors we've ever seen perform. Um, so he was a very obvious choice and, and, and Blake as well. Um, it, I, I, I was lucky to have actually a lot of input in that, in that process because, because of course, um, Noah and I work uh, very closely on, on all of our things together. Um, and he, he allowed me that input. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there wasn't anybody that we cast at any point in time that both of us hadn't fully approved of and, and felt 100% were, were right for the role. Mm-hmm. How widely, Annette, did you, ca- did you cast Noah to find this core ensemble of five? Um, you know, we pretty pretty wide amongst our group here in Los Angeles and and uh, just reaching out to people that we, you know, Seth and I have been in L.A. now doing this for almost a decade. So we know of a lot of really, really wonderful actors. And, um, and you know, if there wasn't... The challenge with, with Tom's character is that it is a really unique person. This is somebody who could be from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's beautiful that Kate is from Australia, but was partly raised in the UK. So her accent is kind of ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Um, And then somebody that really just embodied this like free spirit. And frankly, Kate just was this person. Um, And so as soon as we came upon her, that became Um, self-evident. And then as far as the the rest of the net, like Seth was saying, you know, we, we've known Hugo and Blake for a very, very long time. Um, So it was simple as just acting, asking actors that you respect. Um, Finding Madame Gerard was was quite challenging because 
we didn't know a lot of older French actresses, especially not, um, in, you know, there aren't that many in Los Angeles. So we did a, a, a typical casting um, and then found Nassima, who just exudes that mm-hmm. energy and confidence and yeah. wisdom. Um, it's actually Marion Cotillard's mother. Um, oh, my God. They just have this. Yeah, like similar grace and beauty and magnitude to them. So as soon as we saw her, that was also, uh, you know, was like we we struck gold. Oh my boy! When you talk, when you said earlier about serendipity, you get a lot of that was happening on this film. Wow. Yep. Wow. So you know, what is this magic of the collaboration between the two of you? What is it that, that draws the two of you together, your sensibilities? How does this collaboration work? Obviously, with this one, Seth is like, hey, I got an idea. Let's make this film. And Noah goes, yes, okay, good idea. Is this how you guys work? Yeah, what but, is this spark between you? Yeah, I mean, we've just been doing it for a very long time now. Um, from my perspective, like I just thoroughly enjoy his work. I think we have very different skill sets, and, um, and they work really well together. So we just have similar sensibilities. Uh, you know, we grew up in the same household and I think care about similar things. Uh, and yeah, it just comes from a place of mutual respect and admiration. But Seth, you can answer that on your side. <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, I mean, we grew up doing this, right? Even before I knew I wanted to be a writer, when we were little, uh, little kids and, and before no one knew he wanted to be a director. Um, we, we would just tell stories together uh, before going to sleep at night, all around the house, all around our lives. It was just, um, this has kind of just been a thing where somebody has an idea, somebody tosses it to the other person, and then, you know, it, it kind of just grows. Um, it, feels, it feels like the, the most natural thing um, and, and, and kind of always has. You know, Noah, I'm curious. When was, do you remember when the first time was you ever picked up a camera as a kid to, like, make a movie? You know, it, it wasn't something from the very, very beginning that I, well, I didn't want to be a filmmaker from the very, from the outset. I actually didn't know what I wanted to do until much later in my life. Um, Seth and I had always loved movies and would quote films and relive them and, and had that experience. Seth, as far as I can re- remember, always wanted to be a writer, but I um, took a different path. I went to Cal Arts for theater originally which is what brought me to the States. Uh, Seth and I are from Toronto, Canada originally. Um, and then I spent a brief stint as a reporter for the New York Times. And then I uh, moved back to L.A. And, and Seth and I just started making our own things and telling stories. And it became pretty obvious that that was, um, you know, what I, what I enjoyed most. And then I sort of just had to teach myself. You know, this is the first feature for each of you in your respective disciplines was there any kind of learning curve there, making the, the leap from shorts to features in terms of screenplay and in terms of direction? Seth can go first. Okay. Um, uh, there, yeah, of course there's a leap, and there, and there's, there's a, there are lots of um, learning bumps or speed bumps along the way. I, um, I think that that's probably going to be true for a long time. I'm sure that our second feature... Um, will be will be have just as many learning curves. Um, it it went. I think it went better than we could have expected or could have hoped for our first feature. Um, I, I think that both of us have been talking about. I've, I've been writing features for for a while now, so this isn't the first script that I had written, and and um, 
and Noah has been working with me on those scripts for a, for a long time. So these conversations about features and feature length stories has, has kind of been ongoing. Um, but yeah, it's, there's a, there's a lot that goes into, uh, communication skills. Um, uh, when you're working on a, uh, on a short film, that's a two day, three day shoot. It's, um, it doesn't have the same marathon like feel of communicating with one another, with, with each other, but then also with our team, um, and, and recommitting to the story that we care about. Um, it, it takes a lot of energy to continue to care about something once you've been telling the story for, for 30 days already, um, day and night. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, I, know his process as far as getting the film made and being on set and then also going back and, and being part of the editing process and giving input. It's, it's a, it's a very, very long journey for a director, mm-hmm. um, uh, that can oftentimes take, you know, months, if not years. Yes. As we've seen with many directors over the years, you're absolutely right, Seth. You know, how much of a learning curve did, do you think you had, Noah, leaping from shorts into a feature? Well, like Seth was saying, I think it's just the difference between, you know, a short sprint and then a marathon. I think the real challenge with trying anything new for the first time is that you don't know what you don't have to worry about. So mm-hmm. you worry about everything. Um, and then once you've done something once you can kind of reprioritize where you put your attention. So I think a lot of it, um, I think a lot of the principles are, are the same. Um, it's, you know, a behemoth of, of work to dedicate to something. And it's also a lot of resources that you have to be very cautious with because in a short film, you know, that's got two days of budget. If you make a, a mistake, it can only, you know, it can only go so wrong. Right. Um, in a feature, you have a whole film that is, especially the way Seth writes, you know, everything is, even though it feels extremely organic, it's a mousetrap of sorts. You know, every, every, everything has meaning. There's nothing that's just there extraneously. So you can't afford to miss a beat or, uh, you know, or miss a shot or mess up a shot. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's about planning. But, um, yeah, like I said at the beginning, it, it, I think... It'll be a lot nicer to make the next film because I, I do know to some capacity what I won't have to worry about um, <laughs> in terms of in terms of some of the logistics. Um, but but like Seth said, it will it, you know it'll always be a learning process. Um, I think part of I think as soon as it, the, as soon as it doesn't become a learning process, you're actually lacking some of that creative energy that mm-hmm. you need um, to make something enjoyable. Well, you both definitely made something very enjoyable, and I know that the only one is available on VOD right now uh, because I actually saw it on my Spectrum cable, uh, saw that it was there and available. Uh, any other platforms that it that it's at, that you can find uh, yeah, it's, it it's now? On pretty much every digital uh, on demand. You know, it's on Apple, Apple, and Amazon. Um, anywhere that you can buy it. It's like Redbox Plus, et cetera. And then it's in um, theaters in, uh, you know, 10 select cities. Mm-hmm. Now, any DVD Blu-ray plans for this one? Um, you know, I'm not sure what Vertical Vertical Entertainment is distributing it. I'm not sure what their strategy is um, post-digital release. Um, I'm actually not totally sure what uh, what the model is these days um, for for like an actual physical release. It, it it changes with every film anymore, Noah. 
exactly. And especially, you know, after the lockdown, you know, the past two years, that's really altered the models. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing what digital distribution has done to just the whole, you know, art form of film and, and that type of storytelling. Uh, well, guys, I can't thank you enough. This has been so fun talking to both of you about The Only One. I want to get my passport and go to the south of France now. Uh, and when other people Please see the you film... let us know when you do. We'll give you a recommendation. <laughs> I would love it. And I hope you'll come back on the show again with your next project. We would love to do that. It was a pleasure chatting with you. You're delightful. Thank you so much for watching our film and helping us spread the word. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, thank, thank, thank you so much. It was, it was wonderful talking to you. Thanks, Seth. Thanks, Noah. And have a wonderful holiday season. You as well. Thank you. You Talk too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that was Seth Gilbert, Noah Gilbert. Brothers can get along. Not in my family, but in some. So that is all the time we have today. Next week, our last show of 2021. Uh, And of all things, we're going to be talking about a film that is called Are You Happy Now? Um, 2021 is ending. I think we're all going to be happy. But we're going to have writer-director David Bernstein joining us next week, as well as cinematographer and producer Alan McIntyre-Smith. So, until next week, go to the movies this week. While you're out there getting in the holiday spirit, go check out some of these great films in theaters. West Side Story, National Champions, um, still, Dune, Belfast, so many. And then on your VOD and your digital platforms, so many holiday films are on Netflix. Um, still one of my favorite animated films is Vivo, a new animated film out there, Mosley. It is a charmer. I am in love with it. And Mosley is the cutest little creation in the world. And actually later, later this week on BehindTheLensOnline.net is going to be my exclusive interview with the writer-director Kirby Atkins. So, And Kirby is a lot of fun. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. 